Welcome to the October episode of ONP Rising, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Arielle Fortenberry, a prosthetics resident at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. With me today is Tiffany Graham, MSPO, CPO, LPO, FAAOPD, an associate professor at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Tiffany is an active member of the profession. She serves as treasurer on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists Board of Directors and as the chair of the organization's research committee. Tiffany is also a member of the Academy's Cranial Facial Scientific Society. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Thank you, Ariel. I'm happy to be here today and looking forward to our discussion. Me too. I'm excited to have you join me today to discuss the publication process, putting your best foot forward. Students, residents, and clinicians have a vast array of experiences that we can all learn from. Sharing these experiences with the profession, whether related to a specific patient care case, a research study, or a volunteer experience via an article, case study, or publication is a great way to give back to the profession. Tiffany, you have a multitude of experiences with publishing in a variety of professional entities. I'm excited to speak with you as to why and how an OMP professional can begin the publication process. So my first question for you is how many publications do you have? So to answer that, I'm going to specifically say that I have seven scientific manuscripts that I've published with journals, but I do have some other publications as well that are more opinion pieces. I also have a critically appraised topic through the Academy on their website. And I have an article in press with the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics currently. And I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to have one or even two more submitted to different journals. That's incredible. So most of your work is research-based, but then we've got some opinion pieces. Are those also based on your research? So some of them do have research influence in them, but a lot of them actually came before I was able to do a lot of official research, which has been very nice to be able to do that with the university. So one of the pieces that is, I think, easier to describe is one that was actually a clinical perspective piece where I talked about, clinically speaking, how do you decide if a infant that has a deformational head shape should move forward with a cranial remolding orthosis or if they should be repositioning? And I went into some of the clinical advice that I've been given and that I've used over the years as to how to make that determination. So when did you first start publishing? So officially, as far as the scientific manuscripts, I started in 2019. That was my first scientific publication. But my opinion articles go back much further, about three or four years prior. Okay. So tell us a little bit about what led you to publish your first paper. So my primary motivation has stemmed from being a clinician. So when I was seeing my patients for cranial remolding, and I was excited to know that I could change their head shape, that either through repositioning or an orthosis, and that this could be a permanent change for these infants, then for those who I did decide would likely need an orthosis, and we submitted for insurance authorization, I was getting insurance denials. And some of the things that they were quoting are a small number of studies that claim that repositioning is more effective than a cranial remolding orthosis or equally effective. 
which I know for that particular infant, that was not the case. We had tried repositioning. It didn't work. It wasn't working. And they were old enough that the parents were having a really challenging time changing that head shape. So for me, the motivation to publish came directly from a clinical viewpoint where my patients were getting denied treatment that I clinically felt was needed for them. So I wanted to make sure that hopefully in the future, there were more articles that supported the use of cranial remolding orthoses, especially when repositioning has failed previously. That's an incredible reason to start. I mean, like we all care about our patients. And so when the device that we're trying to get them gets denied, we're kind of annoyed about it, right? Annoyed, upset, and we want to do something about it. So I love that your do something about it started your publication journey, I guess. And does that motivate you to keep publishing? Absolutely. So one of the things that I was really super incredibly excited to find out last year is that there is a major commercial insurance right now that their cranial remodeling coverage policy actually quotes one of my studies. And they use it in support of early intervention with a cranial remolding orthosis. That's awesome. I love that because we want we want our work to make a change and your work has literally made a change. Really exciting. Yes. So going more into the publication process, what was it like when you first started? So I think the biggest challenge I had was just the idea of whether or not the work I had done was worthy of publication in my mind. I knew that I wanted to show that our clinical results align with things that are being seen in studies, but I didn't know the whole process of going into a publication, kind of how to start doing all that. I kind of had to learn it as I went. So I would say that that process has helped me develop future studies as well. And I think really any change in how I approach a publication has been on more on my side. Okay. Can you go into a little bit more in detail about that? So I think initially I just wanted to put the work out there to show what we do clinically makes a difference. And although I still think that's a very important factor and should motivate a lot of our publications, I also think it's important that we really look at what is the audience that we're intending to reach? What is the clinical question we are investigating? Because just saying that something we do as effective as an OMP professional is maybe sometimes a little bit too broad. For example, you know, you have different studies that look at a certain population and a smaller population than what may be a really broad scope. For me, I actually wound up dividing my studies that were mostly retrospective chart reviews at the time by head shape. So although I focused on cranial remolding, I wanted to look at what results were in plagiocephaly group versus brachycephaly group versus asymmetrical brachycephaly group, because in my mind, those populations are treated differently clinically. So I think as I've gone through, I've realized that I really need to focus on a more narrow spot in the population to help get more clinical impact than I previously thought. That makes sense. Have you noticed an evolution in the process since you started? 
Yes, I think I plan out the study a little bit better now with the thought of what is the clinical question I'm trying to investigate. And once I go into that, I think about what controls I need or limitations the study might have. And once I know that, it helps me to develop my methodology better. And so when I go to submit for publication, it makes it easier because I've already thought about all those things. And so the methods and the limitation sections are more clear cut when I go to submit them. I also, very early on in writing up manuscripts, will go to the instruction for authors for the journal that I'm targeting. And a lot of them have very different formats that are required of each journal. A lot of them have different word counts required. And so it helps me to really say, if this journal only allows 3,000 words, I may not be able to publish everything I did in this study. I may need to subdivide it into different analyses. Okay. So basically, now that you've published before, you know that process. And so you look at that process before like designing your study. And then that makes it all the more easier. Yes. So going more into picking the journal or picking, even if you wanted to submit an article to OMP Edge, like how do you pick where you're going to submit your paper to? So part of it is using that clinical question that formulated the study. Who needs to hear that answer? Is it parents that need to hear that answer? You know, in my population of infants that I work with, is it insurance providers that need to see that answer? In which case I might need a journal with a really high impact factor or open access. If I need to reach pediatricians or nurse practitioners, there are different industry journals for them than the OMP profession. Or perhaps I have something that is really going to only be interesting specifically for OMP practitioners, specifically for advanced work within a particular scope. So again, I always go back to cranial remolding because that's my passion. So if I'm going to talk about a very specific case study, I don't know that that needs a huge audience with pediatricians, but it may be fantastic for clinicians to hear and different practitioners to know that this particular head shape could be treated or that these were the results we got. These are some of the challenges we've had. So maybe they can get ready for those challenges or avoid those challenges altogether at the beginning of their treatment. So after you finish your research, how do you approach starting a research manuscript? So I will say I have the opportunity and the privilege of working with a lot of people at the university, including students, residents, and other people who are experts in their field. I work very closely with a biostatistician because I will be first to admit stats is not my forte. I know enough to be dangerous, but I would really like to have additional confidence, knowing that someone who is an expert in stats is able to look at my results and see what they determine is relevant or not. And then I can have my clinical hat on in reviewing whether or not the statistical difference or not difference may be clinically applicable. I love the fact that students and residents have expressed a desire to be a part of these studies because when we're going through proofreading and editing and the literature review part, I love having multiple opinions. 
I love having different eyes view the manuscript before I ever get ready to submit to a journal because I can look at certain paragraph and know 100% what I think that paragraph says. Somebody else can read it and read something completely different. So I love being able to move with different people's opinions of the editing process in order to create a much better piece in the end. You're able to have a peer review process before you actually submit it to the journal peer review. Exactly. Once you do submit to the journal peer review process, what does that look like? So it's different for each journal, but as far as the timeline of the review process, but it does seem at least the journals that I've pursued have had a very similar process when it comes to feedback and response to the reviewers. So I'll just share kind of what I've noticed in my pursuits is that the manuscript you submit, I never really expect it to be the manuscript I publish. I expect that there will be edits. Frequently, there are edits to the charts and graphs and tables that I've presented. Peer reviewers of the journals, they are another set of eyes. Just like I mentioned, I love the fact that I can use other people at the university to be able to help with the peer review process prior to submitting. The reviewers are a completely different set of eyes, usually in a different part of the, the world even, and completely different industry sometimes. And so they can really look at it from their perspective and say suggestions to make the manuscript more clear and more applicable to a broader audience. How often does it come back for edits? Yeah, so I think I've had one that went straight through after I had done multiple edits after it actually got rejected by a different journal. But I'd say on average, it usually takes one or two reviews before my work is published that I've had published. And I think it's really important when you get those reviewers' notes to acknowledge what they say, thank them for doing such a detailed review, and utilize that constructive criticism in order to enhance your paper and make it better. After submission, how long does it usually take, including the sendbacks and the edits and the resubmission, until you finally see your paper published? Yeah, that also very much varies. That's a great question. And I think that's what a lot of people want to hear is that it's a matter of weeks. That is usually not the case. Hopefully it's not a matter of years. Hopefully it's somewhere in between. The quickest I have ever had a paper published was three weeks. The longest it's taken me to publish a paper, which includes submission to multiple journals, is approximately two years. So it definitely varies. I'd say most of the work I've published, the peer review process has taken maybe two to three months. Okay. Does it depend on what kind of journal? Like if you were submitting to the JPO versus a orthopedic journal or whatever. Yes. Every journal typically publishes their review time or their average review time. So you can look at that when you're trying to target a specific journal. Some of them give their reviewers a week to review and send back notes. Others give 30 days. And so that's going to be a big difference when you're looking at your timeline. Makes sense. You mentioned earlier that you have had a manuscript rejected. How did you handle that? So of course, you're always disappointed if, if you just flat out are rejected. 
So I have to say, you know, the first thought is certainly that I'm disappointed. But what I've learned in going through this process multiple times and with different journals is that no just means no for now. That I need to use the reviewer's notes, which are also usually sent along with the rejection letter, to enhance the manuscript, to rewrite parts of it, to perhaps maybe even do a different statistical analysis. I've had a situation where they thought a different analysis completely needed to be done. And so I needed to go back and look at the data and see if I could run that analysis. And through that process has really helped me to fine tune the way these manuscripts look. And I will say right after that rejection letter, I might walk away for a week and not do anything (laughs) regarding that manuscript. I need a little bit of time before I start rewriting it or reworking it. But it definitely is part of the process. And I look forward to the changes that I can make in order to make the manuscript that much better for the next submission. That's awesome. I like how you got to take a break, kind of put it off to the side for a little bit, but then you come back and you you try to make it better and, and submit it to a new place. I love that. So, Ariel. I want to take a minute to also ask you a few questions and get to talking a little bit with you. Sure. As we mentioned in the introduction, you know, we both work at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I was also very, very excited when I put out a call to see who would be interested in some of my studies. And you kind of jumped up and said, hey, I'm interested in this uh, walking study that we're doing. Can you talk a little bit to the audience about what that study is about and what spiked your interest in participation? Yeah. So it was the end of schooling. So I was like just about to graduate and start residency. And there was an announcement that you were working on a study looking at energy expenditure and different levels of amputation. And I was like, that is so cool because I have similar questions and and like I'm also interested in looking at different levels of amputation and patient outcomes and energy expenditure. So I was like, hey, Tiffany, even though I'm doing a clinical residency, can I work on this research project with you? And so for our podcast listeners, the study is looking at energy expenditure and patient reported outcomes between transtibial transmittatarsal and and no amputation, so a control group, in the diabetic population. And so we did all of our testing last year, and this year we've been working on the manuscript, and we're hoping to have it submitted soon. And again, I was just very excited that you were interested, and you have helped so much on that study. And even as an early career, potentially future researcher, You have been able to really impact that study and put a lot of effort into the recruitment process and really helped make it happen. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot about what goes into putting together a research study. I was basically, I did most of the recruitment and it took a lot of work to call everybody and get them scheduled and and get it all organized. Thank you again. Also, you had the opportunity already to present on this project. You were actually the first one to present on it. That's right. Yes, I presented it during our students' research presentation day. As an orthotic resident, I presented it 
And I thought because I had been so involved in it, I thought it was pretty easy to present on it. It was something that I enjoyed, something that I spent a lot of time on. So I was excited to share what we had found with the class and kind of put everything that we had talked about and everything that we had found into one cohesive unit, like into this presentation. And I think, well, I hope that the presentation like helped build the manuscript. So leading into that, you know, you had this opportunity and you did fantastic working on this study. You presented on it. You got to tell all, all the people that you've worked with and been around for a while about this study. What makes you want to go forward with publication? I like learning and I like to have good patient outcomes. So kind of going back to your reasoning about you got into it so your patients could get the treatment that they needed um, and have the outcomes that they wanted. That's kind of my motivation too. What I do and what I research and publish and talk about um, in a presentation can help my patients and help our field. That's what makes it worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. So after having gone through this process, do you have any advice you might offer to other early career professionals who might be interested in publishing in the future? Find people who have published before to work with. So working with you and other people in the study have made it so much easier because if it was just me, I would have no idea where to even begin. Definitely helps to work with others at their unique perspective and their unique help that they can provide. Yes. So do you see yourself continuing to pursue publications in your future career? I think so. If I had the opportunity to, I definitely think that it's beneficial to me and to the field. Like if you teach something, like you learn while you're teaching. And so that's kind of the same thing. Like if you're doing research and then you're presenting and you're writing about it, like you're learning about it too. Absolutely. Well, it's really fantastic to hear that you might continue this in the future. Yeah. I, I certainly hope you do, and I very much encourage you to. Thank you. I do have a few more questions for you. We've talked a lot about submitting the papers and doing the research and stuff like that. Have you noticed or do you feel there are any stigmas associated with publishing a research study? I'm going to answer this from a little bit of a different perspective. I don't know that there's a particular stigma that I think about in publishing, but I actually do have a fear whenever I go to submit for publication or find out that I have a, a manuscript that's been accepted. I worry that what I have written or worked on will be misinterpreted. And I always want to make sure that the point that I'm trying to get across is very clear and that the limitations are very clearly stated because there are a lot of things that I write about or work on that are only applicable to a certain population with certain qualifications. And it can't be generalized to the entire population. For example, I recently presented on and published about a prediction time equation for the treatment of deformational head shapes. But that's only applicable to infants if they're wearing it 23 hours a day, seven days a week, if that is the protocol of the office, if they're being concurrently treated for torticollis, the tightening of the neck, and if they have normal growth patterns. 
So if somebody were to try to use that equation in a different setting, it may have very demotivating results by having the wrong answer for the parents as far as how long treatment is expected to last. So I think that's one of the things that I worry about most when I'm publishing is how could it be interpreted or if a certain sentence could be pulled out and perhaps misinterpreted, how that might be used. I had never thought about that. On the flip side, what about benefits or other opportunities that you get from doing research and publishing? I think the upside is fantastic. As I mentioned, that commercial policy supporting use of cranial remolding orthoses, seeing that these studies can really impact the ability to provide needed services for our patients is really one of the huge benefits of publishing. And what's interesting is that to help formulate my ability to publish, frequently I'll do conference presentations before I even finish the manuscript. And doing those presentations really help to formulate the data analysis and get some feedback on how some of the data is being interpreted, some questions that people have in reviewing the data. And I can then use that later on in the publication to make it easier to read. Do you have any simple tips or tricks for getting your publication ready for submission that we haven't talked about? I think the main thing is just looking at those instructions for authors, making yeah. sure that everything is according to the journal guidelines so it doesn't get kicked back before it's even reviewed. Yeah. And lastly, do you have any final advice for someone who is interested in submitting a publication but doesn't know where to start? Absolutely. I think that's a wonderful question. The first thing I would say is just to do it. You know, come up with a clinical question, even if it's just what you think might be a simple question or if it's a single question, think about what would motivate the study. What are you trying to look at or investigate? And if you come up with one question, as you do the study, you're going to come up with 50 more. And you're going to be able to formulate your thoughts more. So if I had to narrow it down to just one piece of advice for people who might be interested, I would say, come up with a clinical question and then go for it. I love that. Well, thank you again for joining us, Tiffany. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of ONP Rising. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with seasoned ONP professionals as they share candid insights on topics relevant to those interested in starting on the right foot when it comes to a career in ONP. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals. The award-winning ONP Research Insights with Dr. Stephen Gard and ONP Clinical Insiders with Academy Scientific Society's Chair, Seth O'Brien, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care. And for more information on the American Academy for Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.